This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida's Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory in Ruskin, Florida. Thanks for joining us. Old world cichlids, comprised primarily of fish from Africa, are a large and very diverse group of fish in the aquarium hobby. Aquarium enthusiasts are familiar with many of the beautifully colored species from Lake Malawi and Lake Tanganyika, including the peacock cichlids, red zebras, and brachardi. These same fish also hold great interest for scientists because of their fascinating reproductive biology, ecology, behavior, and evolution. Leif de Mason, a well-known importer and breeder of African cichlids, is the owner of Old World Exotic Fish Incorporated and is based in Homestead, Florida. Leif has been breeding cichlids since 1969 and currently specializes in production and importation of African cichlids. Leif has authored numerous aquarium fish articles and writes a regular column for Cichlid News entitled, What's New Around the World? So join us as we talk to Leif about his business, his favorite fish, and what hobbyists need to know to succeed with these species. We'll join Leif right after these messages from our sponsors. Molly, here's your dinner. (coughs) Zeus, that's not your food. Don't let that happen to your precious cat. Elevate your cat's eating experience with the Cat Tree Tray. The Cat Tree Tray keeps your cat's food off the floor and conveniently located on the cat tree. It's the perfect way to eat. It's a beautiful wrought iron tray that easily attaches to your cat tree and keeps dogs and other critters out of your cat's dish. A must for multi-pet households. There's a 6-inch tray for large bowls and a 4-inch tray for smaller bowls. Purchase your Cat Tree Tray today. Go right now to CatTreeTray.com. That's CatTreeTray.com. C-A-T-T-R-E-E-T-R-A-Y.com. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Leif DeMason, owner and operator of Old World Exotic Fish Incorporated, based in Homestead, Florida. Hi, Leif. Thanks again for uh, joining us today. <laughs> Hi, Roy. Uh, thanks for inviting me. It's good to be here. So you've been involved for such a long time, I know, and have a pretty, pretty great reputation in the hobby. When, when did you actually first get involved in the hobby? Uh, I started keeping fish when I was um, summer before I went to high school, so that was in 1969. That's when I actually started with fish. Before then, I didn't really keep much fish. I kept other animals, but not fish. And what was your very first fish? Well, I sort of took over my younger brother's aquarium, which he was about, I guess he was around, well, he's younger than six years old. But uh, the first fish in that community tank were white cloud mountain fish. Uh, head and tail light tetras, Leporinus fasciatus. There were some small ones. We had four, and they actually lived for over 10 years, and some angelfish. Wow, that's a pretty good memory. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I remember I took care of the aquarium for at least a year or so before branching out into different fish. So how did you get interested in breeding fish? Well, I first just sort of read up on 
keeping the fish when I took over the aquarium because it was sort of a different thing. I was mostly keeping reptiles and amphibians before then. And uh, I didn't really know much about fish. And uh, the aquarium stores in our town was were, there was only one at the time. It was pretty far away, at least a half an hour drive from where we lived. It was in the center of town. And back then there were these big metal frame aquariums with slate bottoms. And uh, they were a little expensive for me <laughs> being a, uh, a youngster. And so what happened was is the white cloud mountain fish, I saw them breed and throw eggs out and stuff. And, of course, all the other fish ate them. Then I sort of started thinking, well, you know, these fish breed. That's sort of interesting. So I started buying fish books about, you know, different fish. And uh, I finally bought one out about angelfish. And, of course, it had a lot of uh, knowledge and, and uh, stuff about the breeding of angelfish. So that's when I started more concentrating more on angelfish. And, you know, I forgot to ask you at the very uh, outset. So where did you grow up again and where, were, where was all this taking place? Well, I grew up in... Um, Southeast Michigan, first near Detroit, and then when we had the aquarium, I was in um, Ann Arbor, Michigan, which is where the University of Michigan is, and I okay. grew up there most of my life. Okay. So, I guess you said you went to University of Michigan. You told me that yeah. earlier. And and so, how did you go from, I guess, kind of this interest in fish to going wholeheartedly into the fish business? Uh, well, what happened was is I got this aquarium I inherited from my younger brother, and then the angelfish actually spawned in there after the white cloud mountain fish uh, on some plastic plants. And so I started, you know, reading up on it, and then I realized they needed another aquarium to sort of start putting more fish away in the different areas. And so I started expanding the situation, and I, I actually moved into the basement, well, the aquariums into the basement, my parents' house where at one point in time I probably had a little more than 20. But it was a slow process where I would accumulate another aquarium based on, you know, breeding angelfish and raising them up and selling them. A couple of the aquariums I made were just sort of wooden frame ones with plastic sort of laid inside and filled with water so I could actually, you know, put uh, small angelfish in and raise them up. So then during the high school era, I uh, actually the 12th year, or my 12th grade in, in high school, uh, last year, the senior in high school, I actually went home every lunch just to feed the angelfish, and I was selling them quite regularly to the stores that were in the area. By then, there was about three or four uh, in our town instead of just one, and I sold quite a lot of angelfish, made a few thousand dollars over the summertime and during the year, and it sort of helped pay for going to uh, the university the next following year. Wow. So, yeah, that's a lot of money yeah, even now. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. So, well, it was yeah. a lot of work, yeah. too, but yeah, that's true. I didn't pay myself, and I used my parents' electricity and so on and all the equipment I raised by trading the fish. So, uh, anyways, it, it sort of worked out, but then when I went to uh, the university, I didn't have time for that anymore, and so it sort of slowly went back down to a normal sort of aquarium just holding facility there my younger brother a different brother was taking care of it for the time being and then i graduated university in six semesters so i came out in three years and then i went back to my hobby and started keeping different fish mostly african cichlids and uh, then i would also breed them on the side just to uh, supplement my income what i was actually working for the medical center uh, as a research assistant at that time so how did you end up in florida from michigan well, I used to work for a wholesaler in um, in Ann Arbor during one summer period, and he ended up going to Florida, and we sort of kept in touch here and there. 
and I, I'd buy some fish from him once in a while. And then um, he offered uh, some of the, his space on a farm he was developing to start raising fish. And by then I had actually old world exotic fish working. It was a business. So I found that, you know, instead of raising them in a, you know, wholesale warehouse environment where you had to heat the building and all that stuff, it was much cheaper to be in Florida. So I had a couple of partners at that point in time. And so we'd take turns going to Florida and sharing the fish farm facility with this other guy. And uh, I ended up just staying in Florida after a while. So is that where you guys are now, or, did, or is that the original No, no, site? it's not the original site, but it's okay. very close to the original site, yes. Okay. So I guess back then when you first started out, you know, versus kind of now, what are, kinda, what are some overall major changes I guess you've seen in, in the cichlid, cichlid world? Well, when I first started in the early 70s with African cichlids, they were sort of new and there was only a few species like erratus and red zebras and cobalts and stuff like even Kenyans weren't weren't known for a while and um, then the interest sort of picked up but it, they sort of filtered new new fish into the hobby from the collectors on a sort of slow basis so there really wasn't a huge accumulation of new species every year so it'd be like two or three new Malawi species every year and so it it sort of built up like that so in other words the varieties were a lot less when I first started and, um, of course, all the technical stuff that, you know, we have in the office now is, is quite a bit different, too. I remember at the beginning, we used to, when people called us up and asked us what kind of fish we have, we used, we used to read a list, a stock list, over the phone to the person, to the customer, to find out what they wanted to buy, which, or mail it to them in the post, which was pretty slow, too. But uh, uh, nowadays, of course, with emails and faxes and stuff like that, it's a lot faster. Now, the other thing, there wasn't as much competition as there is now for the same kind of fish, especially from the Far East. So in, in, a, in Europe, in America, we really started with Africans in the, in the early 70s and, and 80s quite strong. As the Far East picked it up, it was more like the late 80s and early 90s. So the competition from the farms over there wasn't as keen as it is now. Okay. So I guess, can you tell us a little bit about your um, present facility? Oh, the present one? Yeah. Well, we, we occupy a five-acre facility in Homestead, Florida, and we also ran another two-and-a-half-acre one This about five minutes from here. The co- in combination, we have, I think there was about 56 ponds, no, 86 in-ground ponds, which are sort of like a swimming pool size. They're generally about 20 by well, say 50 by 20 and about four feet deep in general. There's some smaller ones and some a little bit bigger than that. And then we have uh, several different sizes of concrete vats that we above the ground that we also house fish in. And there's about, let's see, on this facility there's about 500. And the other one, uh, the other facility, there's about 100. So that's about 600 of the concrete vats. And then on this facility, the five-acre facility, we have a building, a hatchery building, that one has about just short of a thousand glass aquariums in there. We have 650 30 gallon flat breeders and 120 10 gallon tanks, and about 40 uh, of these concrete vats also inside for breeding and housing fish. Wow, so and yeah, everything def- else is outside, of course. <laughs> All the other right. vats and ponds are outside. Right. Yeah, definitely a yeah, definitely a big operation. And yeah, you guys, from what I remember, you guys have those kind of interesting, uh, I guess, uh, old coral reef type ponds, right? Yeah, the, the, the soil around here, well, what they pass off for soil is really just an old coral reef. So the first four to six inches is sort of dirt 
mixed with sort of limestone rock from an old coral reef. Uh, this place used to be underwater for <laughs> for a long time, so it was part of the ocean, but now it's dry. And then once you get below the six-inch mark, it's just solid coral rock and until you hit the water table, and of course, below that as well. But the water table varies. It's pretty high, and it varies from about five feet to about 10 feet down, depending on what time of the year is and how much rain there's been. So where would you say most of your fish come from? And I know you you, know, you obviously breed and import fish. How, how often are you getting shipments in to your Well, facility? right now, the, the business has been slacking off as a general rule in, in the aquarium industry uh, and livestock especially. And we're getting shipments about once a week. And it used to be that we'd get shipments about three to five times a week. Here at on our breeding facilities, we actually raised 200 different kinds of African cichlids. And then, of course, we supplement that with uh, at least another 300 kind at any given time of whatever we import. And generally, we sort of breed the stuff that we can't buy readily because it's seasonal or hard to get or far away in, in the places where the exporters have to go or hard to collect in big numbers, you know. So we try to breed those and then the, the things that, you know, we can get readily from the established exporters and collectors, we, we don't breed as much, but we rather buy them as we need them and based on our sales. So you've, you've been involved with opening a lot of new areas to import fish. What were some of the, I guess, either horror or kind of cool stories you have, <laughs> uh, you know, involved with doing that sort of work? Well, there's three lakes where most of the African cichlids come from. One of the lakes is Lake Malawi, and that's surrounded by three different countries. And then another lake is Lake Tanganyika, that's surrounded by four countries. And then Lake Victoria is surrounded by another three countries. And uh, I've been to most of the countries that neighbor all those places and also some of the West African countries and Madagascar. And I've been instrumental in sort of bringing out and breeding Madagascar fish Lake Victorian Basin fish, basically out of Uganda and Kenya, and also the Tanzanian side of Lake Malawi. Now, the Tanzanian side of Lake Malawi was not really open to people visiting for a long time because there was actually, from the 60s, there was a war between Tanzania and Malawi. I think there was only a couple skirmishes and a few shots fired, but the borders were closed and people didn't really go to the Tanzanian side. And, and Malawi, of course, claimed all the way up to the actual shoreline of the whole lake up to Tanzania. But technically, you couldn't go there and collect fish. It was not allowed. So the conflict thaw finally thawed in the early 90s, and the border was open. And uh, then people could go, you know, adventurous people like me could go and start collecting in places that nobody had collected in before. And uh, one of the times when we were actually traveling between, it was actually coming from Tanzania, and going into Malawi, because we'd have to fly to a long way, Malawi, to get... Uh, it used to fly to Dar es Salaam, but that's on the other side of the country in Tanzania from where the lake was. So it was over a day's journey to get from Dar es Salaam by road to the northern end of Lake Malawi. So I started going to the long way, coming back and forth then. And one time when um, we were coming through Tanzania... And into Malawi, uh, we passed and got out. There was really no border crossing. There were buildings and customs, and none of that was there. I mean, eventually they, they made that within a few years. But 
we crossed over, got our passport stamps, we went into the Malawi side, and those guys were not expecting anybody to come down the road, and they pulled out their machine guns and rifles and pointed at them at us and made us all get out of the car and lay on the ground while they searched the car, and then the guy I was with was basically saying, look, you know, the border is open, you guys, what's the matter with you? Don't you know that, you know, we're not doing anything wrong. And then they agreed and, and then they stamped our passports and left. That was a little hairy right there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Any, whenever anyone's shooting uh, automatic weaponry at you or, or uh, doing Pointing this sort of thing. Is good enough. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's true. Pointing at it. That's what I mean. So, wow. So, yeah, that definitely uh, definitely uh, did a lot of sacrificing for the uh, the hobby, I can see. What I want to do next after a break is talk to you a little bit more about some of the specific species that would be maybe of interest to some of the beginning hobbyists and uh, get kind of some feedback from you on all of that. So let's take a short break to hear from our sponsors and then we'll continue our discussions of African cichlids with Leif right after these messages. It's designerpetsweaters.com. Hand-knitted designer sweaters for your precious pup or cool cat. Beautiful couture patterns for your pets, including custom-knitted formal wear, casual wear, yachting, and even sports-themed. Many designer pet sweaters include feathered tammy hats, top hats, and a lot of sparkle. Each sweater includes leg loops, front paw sleeves, and leash opening. Visit designerpetsweaters.com to order your four-legged fashions today. Your pets will stay warm for the winter and be runway ready. Large or small, we fit them all. Designerpetsweaters.com Let's Talk Pets. Let's Talk Pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com We're back, and we're continuing our discussion with my guest, Leif DeMason of Old World Exotic Fish. So, Leif, you kind of talked a little bit about some of the uh, hairy things that you went through just to get some fish into the country, and I know you started breeding a while ago. With your kind of early interest in angelfish and then working your way into Africans, you have a kind of feel for what fish would be good for folks to work on and, and maybe what different types of interest they would have for some of these species. What, what would you consider some good species that you like for maybe a beginning hobbyist to consider? You're talking about like African cichlid species? Yeah, African cichlids. Okay, yeah. because I, I think they're a little bit, in general, a little bit more difficult than some of the other species of tropical fish that you can get in stores like live bears and things like that. I would recommend right. for beginners. But if you're going into cichlids, I think the biggest thing that you should do is is buy your fish when they're small and put them all into the tank at the same time together, small. Um, I would recommend for most beginners are Malawi fish just because a lot of the species, when they're small, have a lot of color and they're sort of interesting. Now, for a beginner, you have to remember that most African cichlids, most cichlids in general, but African cichlids are, are tend to be a little bit territorial and aggressive, aggressive especially when they're older and bigger. So there's always going to be chasing around and stuff like that, but you just got to make sure you arrange your aquarium and start out when they're small so that they, that they um, sort of live, live together and get used to each other and don't, don't inflict any damage that could be. Normally in the, in the wild, if, if a, cha- a fish is chasing another one, it swims away, far away, and it never comes back. But in the aquarium, of course, it can't get away. So you're going to have to protect those individuals from too much aggression 
uh, by any one individual within your tank. Oh, what are, yeah, what I was going to say, that what I recommend is the Malawi fish just because they're colorful. Now, if you don't like uh, fish rearranging an aquarium, because some cichlids can be really great diggers, uh, they dig around and they move the gravel around, they heap it over to one side of the aquarium and make big holes in the tank, in the tank all the way to the bottom, and so it's some, somewhat unsightly, and they dig up plants, and even plastic plants, and they move them around. If you're if you're sort of trying to avoid that when you're a beginner, I would not recommend any Melanochroma species of the Malawi cichlids because they dig quite a lot, especially when they're older. What are some of the common names, I guess, for some of these fish? And, and for example, like oh, the Oh, well, most of the yeah. common names, like uh, Melanochromus erratus, which is I'm sort of trying to get people away from that if they don't like the digging aspect. But what I would recommend is something like a cobalt zebra, which is a Kalanos, uh, Metroclima Kalanos. We use the Latin names, but they change them so often that some people can't follow the one name. Before that was Pseudotrophia zebra. And so if you don't know the whole history of the of the nomenclature, sometimes it's confusing, especially for the beginners. But a lot of the stores will use the old sort of common name handles like cobalt zebra or white zebra or red zebra. All those are pretty good for beginners. There's, you know, like Kenya eyes are not bad. That's Pseudotrophius lombardoi or Metroclima now lombardoi. And, uh, you know, things like that, they have colors. I, I would, you know, rusty cichlids are all another one. Uh, there's things like that that I would recommend for the beginner. Because it actually is one of my favorite fish, but I know it's probably one of the, uh, I'm assuming you can correct me, but it, one of the more territorial ones too. You, you have a fish named after yourself, right? Yeah, that's correct. Pseudotrophius demasonite. It's a beautiful fish, but that's pretty aggressive, isn't it? It's it's pretty aggressive. It's related to, um, you know, it's related to uh, elongatus type, and those elongatus right. types are generally a little bit more aggressive than the zebra types. Labidochromus are also good, but they can be aggressive depending on the situation. But for a beginner, like I say, if you start small, you might be able to get away with, you know, even putting demasonized in the same tank, but... But you know, as they get bigger, they're gonna, there's going to be some die here and there. So they sort of fit into the arena that you give them, given time. When they're small, they're not, as, they're not as territorial as when they're bigger. Although I would say the demasonized do uh, chase the other fish around quite a bit and, and nip their fins. So They've got a really beautiful kind of bright blue sort of color. And uh, I always meant to ask you if they were named after you because, like, they're so aggressive. Is that like? Yeah, they were named after me. <laughs> Not because they're so aggressive. <laughs> I'm kidding. So, what kind of, I guess, densities are you talking now? And and actually, maybe just to give some of the folks who aren't familiar with these, what sort of sizes do they get to? You know, when they're well, typically Malawi fish and and most Tanganyikan fish get to only about three to five inches. They're not really humongously big fish. There are some that are bigger and there are some that are smaller. Now, when you buy them small in the store, they'll be usually an inch and a half. I would recommend inch and a half, two inches. But make sure you get them sort of all the same size. And I would also recommend not getting one of this and one of that and one of this and one of that. You should get like four to six of one thing, four to six of another. And I wouldn't really start any uh, Malawi cichlid aquarium off without starting with at least a 29-gallon aquarium. Smaller than that's just too small. So as always with the, the cichlids, I would recommend getting the biggest aquarium that you can afford because it's, it's going to help you in the long run, not only the water quality, but also the fish are going to be able to uh, 
deal with their own personalities and behaviors in a bigger aquarium rather than a smaller aquarium. So in a 29, if you start with a 29, I would put like 20 to 36 inch and a half small Malawi fish in there, what we call mbunas, which are the rock-dwelling cichlids from Lake Malawi. And they usually have color when they're small. And that would be a good setup. Now, after three, four years, you're not going to have 36. They're not going to be, there's probably going to be more like, you know, maybe 25 left. But um, they'll generally get along. But if you buy 25 three or four inch aquarium or Malawi fish and put them in an aquarium at the same time, they're going to, they're going to beat each other up and kill each other. So it will be a disaster doing it the other way around. So you mentioned water quality a little bit. What kind of water quality do these fish prefer? And you know, what do um, hobbyists have to consider when they're looking at water quality for okay. these? The biggest problem that most people do not compensate for in African cichlids is the fact that they come from hard alkaline water system. Now, they don't need hard and alkaline water to, to live. They can go with neutral water and a medium, a medium hardness. But the fact of the matter is, is they're really actually very sensitive to ammonia waste, just like saltwater fish. So once you get a pH around 8 or 8.3, like a saltwater tank, the ammonia waste in the water is 10 times more toxic than a neutral pH. So you have to remember, you can't see ammonia in the water. It's invisible. It's clear, just like the water. So they don't always die straight away from the ammonia, high ammonia toxicity, but they will get sick very easily. So you have to keep a, an idea out for this ammonia waste and not feed your fish when you first set them up. Do not feed the fish very, very much at all. They won't starve, I'm sure. For a couple of weeks, just very, very hold back on the food until the ammonia cycles get all established, and then you can go ahead and feed a little bit more. But the biggest common problem for this ammonia waste is that people overfeed their fish, and therefore they build up a lot of waste. And the waste they pick up in their gills, and they can't get rid of it out of their body because they pick it back up in their gills. So you have to do water changes. And when I was keeping Malawi fish and African fish in aquariums, I would do more than a 50% water change like every two weeks. Okay. And yeah, but maybe just, you don't have to do that, but you certainly have to change water every couple of weeks. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. And, and maybe just to reiterate, definitely makes sense for them to obviously have a water quality test kit or if they have a way to test their water, if they're not, you know, able to change it as much, at least they'll have an idea and, um, you know, that's definitely, definitely, I, I know it's, it's really hard not to want to feed these guys, you know, as they kind of come up to the tank and look. Yeah, all they beg like dogs. <laughs> Just yeah. any wild animal is going to be very impulsive to get food if they know the food is easily available. But it's really not the best thing for them to be fed a lot all the time because a lot of the food that are manufactured are very high in protein. And the fact of the matter is in the wild, they get food and they dibble, just scan them out of food every day and most of the food has the things that they eat don't have any nutritional value so the protein content is very very low in the wild whereas of course they're always driven to eat because of this but in in, a, in an aquarium setting the protein value and the nutritional value of the food is very high and so they're getting a lot more than what they would get in the wild just from one feeding. So would you recommend maybe some of these more specialty kind of cichlid type diets or what, what do you recommend? Well, the cichlid diets are basically for color, bringing out color, which they're good for okay. and they'll develop the stronger color because cichlids in general, I mean, there's, there's herbivore cichlids and there's predator cichlids and, you know, not all cichlids do the same thing in, in the wild. They, they have different niches and they, they feed different things. But in general, 
it's based on and the algae that's grown in in the lake uh, on the rocks that are the reefs that make up Lake Malawi and Tanganyika and Victoria. So the algae has a lot of carotene in it, color components, and it brings out the color. Now, if you don't give your fish, you know, higher quality food with a little bit of carotene in it. Uh, then, or let's see, for us, it's, it's very easy because they're outside and they get natural sunlight and algae that way. But if you have a prepared food, it's not going to have a high enough carotene contact to keep them content, to keep them completely in color all the time. So a lot of people go with these specialized cichlid diets just to keep their colors at their peak or, and even actually overdose them on that stuff so that they develop more color than they would in the wild, which is possible. But... Um, Along with those carotenes and things that are in the food is also high protein. So people forget that, you know, you can't just, I would recommend actually feeding the fish maybe only four times a week on pellet food. Now, you can feed them flake food, which is not usually as high protein, and it's sort of more bulkier, so they're not getting, they can't overeat as easily with flake food. But, you know, the days that you don't feed them with pellets, just feed them flake food. Okay. They'll be fine and they'll grow still too, you know. I mean, a lot of times here, we just feed the, the stuff in the hatchery from the wild. We just feed them flake food while we're having, you know, maintaining them here just to sell. We're not really trying to put growth on them. We're just trying to keep them healthy until they, they're sold. But you don't even feed them pellet food. Okay. So I, I guess, you know, and, and maybe going back to the fish in the hatchery and, and breeding, what, I know many people uh, in the cichlid associations are real fascinated by the breeding. Can you maybe give us a kind of brief intro to some of the African cichlid breeding methods? Well, yeah, most of the breeding methods of African cichlids, most all the Malawi uh, cichlids, the cichlids from Lake Malawi are mouth brooders. The females brood the mouth, the eggs in the mouth and the progeny, the young in the mouth. So what will happen will be sort of the males take out a territory and they have the wild vivid colors to attract the females. The females come and breed when they're ready and then they move off holding the young in their mouth. So a lot of people try to reproduce this by having several females to one male, although I don't think that's the best idea. What we usually do is put one male to every five females because, first of all, if we want genetic variability, we don't want one male breeding all the time with, with the females because it narrows the gene pool and it also makes down the road when we grow up the, the young to new breeders, it'll make it uh, brother-sister crosses where, you know, it'll, it'll be sort of a line-bred fish. We try to keep the gene pool very big, so we put more males <laughs> than most people do in their aquariums to breed them. And this also has another effect. The other effect is, is that the males chase each other around a little bit more than, than chasing the females when there's only one male in the tank. Now, the okay. other mechanism where most of the Tanganyika, well, several Tanganyikan fish are also mouth brooders like Frontosas and Trophius and Duboises and uh, things like that. But there are a lot of Lamprologians like Julitochromus and uh, Altolamprologus and Lamprologus that do breed like sort of like an angelfish. They breed in pairs and the females lay their eggs on a nest that they guard or a substrate or a cave mostly and, and the male fertilizes them and they are, are substrate spawners, so they adhere to the hard surface and they guard the nest and the progeny where they, when they hatch out. Those fish you're going to have to feed like bride shrimp, maybe bride shrimp hatched out because they're quite smaller than the mouth brooder uh, fish from Malawi or Tanganyika. So based on, uh, I guess, or, or what are the pluses and minuses then if, you're, you know, if some, someone knows that fish they have in the store are imported versus 
maybe bred uh, domesticated fish, what would you Well, would you there's say a lot difference? of pluses and minuses. You know, imported fish are going to be more expensive. Let's face it, they're caught halfway around the world. Sometimes they're deep, decompressed for a day or two to bring them up to the surface. Then they're sent on a, an airplane all the way across the world. Then they're sort of unpacked and repacked and, and finally get to your tank. Now, those wild fish, in my opinion, uh, generally are, are smaller than, than, than the, the uh, farm fish or the domestic fish, which is good because they're, they color up and they're smaller. But also their fecundity seems to be, their, their willingness to breed seems to be way higher than any fish you raise. So those are pluses. <laughs> okay, now the minuses would be that they would have, you know, obviously exposure to parasites and stuff from the wild. Well, that's what the reason why you need to quarantine all your fish. And we actually quarantine everything here for a week and prophylactically treat them to get rid of all the parasites that they may come in with before we start selling them. So when we import the fish, they're here for a whole week. We clean them up the best we can, both externally and internally, before we put them out to sale so that you guys won't have to deal with that. But then again, there's always going to be some chance that they're going to harbor some parasite, whether it's an ectoparasite or an internal parasite, that would be able to be spread into your system too. So that would be a negative. Well, you know, I've got probably a, a thousand more questions for you, but unfortunately we're, we're out of time. Definitely want to thank you, Leif, and our producers, especially Mark Winter, for uh, making the show possible. Before we go, Leif, did you have any final words or anything you wanted to uh, impart to our uh, listeners? Well, I encourage everybody to keep fish. I mean, it's an interesting hobby. It, it teaches you a lot about biology, and, and you know, it's, it's kept me going for a long time. And the, one of the fascinating things about African cichlids is there's so many different kinds and groups of African cichlids. There's peacocks, and there's lamprologus, and there's frontosa. If one goes out of, out of fashion or out of style, then there's always another one people graduate to, and it's always something that keeps interest up no matter how, how long you're in the hobby. Now, the other thing I'd recommend is we also put out a magazine called Cichlid News Magazine. There's a web page for, I think there'll be a link on, on, on the forum link here. And yes, you definitely. can go ahead and click on that and take a look and see if you, it's a quarterly magazine exclusively about cichlids oriented towards advanced hobbyists. But certainly young, young guys just getting into it can certainly read it too. Sounds good. Well, thanks very much again, Leif. Uh, you were a uh, wealth of information and uh, I, I think uh, hopefully got a, a lot of folks out there even more interested in, uh, in aquarium keeping and in cichlids. So uh, please be sure to check out Leif's webpages on Aquarium Mania. We'll, uh, we'll have the links he mentioned on there. I encourage all of you to visit my Aquarium Mania blog on Pet Life Radio. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy, that's D-R-R-O-Y at PetLifeRadio.com, drroy at PetLifeRadio.com. If you're ever in Florida, please be sure to visit the Aquarium Mania exhibit at the Florida Aquarium in Tampa. Definitely one of my favorite aquariums. Until next time, visit your local aquarium stores and make sure to keep your tanks clean and your fish healthy. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com. <laughs>